I got a question for you all this morning before we go into our sermon, and I really need your help. So is everybody giving their best attention? I don't expect perfect attention, but just your best attention. Okay, here's a question. There's this place in uh, the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is talking about really, really churchy people who believe that they're really holy and good and righteous in obedience. And, and Jesus says, you know, some of you all who think you're really good and holy and righteous and obedient, you know what you're like? You're like, you're like a tomb. Does anybody know what a tomb is? Isaac, I think you were first. What's a tomb? It's where you put someone after the death. It's where you put, it's where you put a dead body. You used to put a dead body. It'd be like a cave or a rock. There'd be this carving out. And Jesus said, you're not just like a tomb. You're like a really, really, really pretty tomb. He calls it a whitewashed tomb. Now, what do you think Jesus meant when he told some of these righteous, holy, obedient people, or really people who thought that they were, he told them that they were like a really pretty tomb. Graham, what do you think? What do you think he was saying? Anybody hear what, did everybody hear what Graham said? Could anybody not hear it? Did everybody understand what Graham just said? Jesus was often talking to people who on the outside, they looked really obedient, they were doing the right things, but on the inside, basically said there's just death. There's no love in their heart. There's no love for God. There's no love for their neighbor. They're performing. They are acting good because they think it's what they're supposed to do or they think it'll make people like them but there's not real love in their heart. Now, I want you kids to know something. We don't want you just to be well-behaved. I know sometimes grown-ups act like that. Sometimes I act like that as a pastor. Like, I want everybody to be really well-behaved. That's actually not what I'm supposed to want. I'm supposed to want you and my kids and me to love God and love people and the actions will come out of that love inside, inside out. Life on the inside leads to beautification on the outside, to, to good works and things like that. Just one second, Isaac, I want to get your question. But there's one other picture I want to leave with you before we're done. There's another picture that we often talk about with the grown-ups that gets at the same thing, and it's this. And I, I really like it. You can tell me later what you think of it. Okay, let's say I, re, I, have, a, I have an orchard growing apple trees. And the, the apple trees aren't growing that well this season. So what I do is I get my favorite stapler and I go to the grocery store and I find some nice big apples. And I go out to my trees and I just start stapling apples on all the branches. And I say, hey, do you want to come to my orchard and look at my gorgeous apples? Would you want to come and look at that? Why not? Graham, just raise your hand. What do you think? Why wouldn't you want to do that? It's shiny death. There's no life that's bringing forth health. I'm faking it. Now, here's one of the things. Oh, raise your hand. I do want to hear what you have to say. Raise your hand. Could you, could you just? Yeah, Isaac.
Ah, uh, does God love you because you're good? Great point, Isaac. No, I see a lot of head shaking. Why does God love you, Titus? Uh, God loves me because he's your creation. Because he's, he's your creation. And, and, and why did he create you? Brother, you should be stumped. There's not really a great answer for it. That's the best answer you could have given, Titus. He loves you because he loves you. Does he love you because you're good? No. But when we receive his love, we love him back. Right? We're going to talk about today about root and fruit. Root and fruit. The fruit we want in our lives. The good deeds. The good behavior. The ways we're kind to other people, the way we have self-control and things like this doesn't come by just acting it out on the outside. It comes by tending to what's going on in the inside. Is there love for God? Am I receiving God's love for me? And how's it working its way out in my life and in the world? You know, one of the things I said in my prayer actually uh, wasn't totally correct. I said as I was going to the Lord's Prayer, we'll be praying this prayer in eternity some of it we will. We will always be praying uh, in some way, your will be done on earth as in heaven because in God's eternity, in his new creation, heaven and earth will always be together. Um, it, there is a way, though, in which we won't be saying forgive our debts anymore because we'll be with him all the time, hearts full of his love, working its way out towards him and other all the time. But in the meantime, one of the things we always need to be doing is tending to What's going on in my heart, and how is that working out in my relationships? You guys have been amazing. Grown-ups, can we give them a round of applause? And um, I'm going to invite you back towards your grown-ups, where we're all going to stand together for the scripture reading for the sermon this morning. Hear these words from the book that we love. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters." And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils, in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, 
and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is jumping now to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been looking at this pretty unsettling flood story for a few weeks now, and we're going to also one more week next week. And last week, we talked about how one way we need to apply the flood story is to think about it like a baptism, like a baptism. God washes away sin and evil with water while also mercifully bringing those who trust him safely through the water into a secure new life with him. And that's why even though when we come to Christ, our sins are washed away by his blood through his sacrifice on the cross, he still says, be baptized with water. He commands this right before he ascends. Why? Because just like those in the ark, we're delivered out of judgment, part of a cleansed new people, and carried into a new secure life with God. We talked about that all last week. So sorry if you missed it, but it's, it's online if you need to go back. Now, you might hear all that and say, yeah, that's a really cute story. That is, that's a nice way of making a symbolic meaning out of an old disturbing story. Good job. Good job taking a tough passage and making it practical and applicable for now. Actually, that's not what I'm doing because Jesus and the apostles themselves tell us that the flood is about baptism. Jesus and the apostles say so. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and following. And whenever any place in the New Testament, that's the Jesus stories, the four gospels forward in your Bible, any place where the New Testament authors are commenting on the Old Testament, any place you find that, that is the main meaning. This is how our faith has always stood. Um, theologians call it the normative meaning, the normal meaning. It's like the standard, the baseline. What, whatever other meaning really is there, and there are, I mean, who can exhaust the meaning in these stories? Whatever other meanings are there, this is our baseline. It's about baptism. It's about new life in Christ. But that's not the only thing that the New Testament says about this Old Testament story. That's why I brought a verse, just one verse at the end of our reading, from the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, into the end of this story. It's verse 7, and I'll read it again. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is actually a really unique one-verse commentary on the whole three-and-a-half-chapter-long story. He's saying something that nothing in Genesis says about Noah. In, in, in Genesis, we get Noah's action. God warns, he obeys. God commands, he does it. He enters the ark. 
And that's pretty much it. Then he comes out, he offers a sacrifice, he goes into this new world. We don't get what's going on in his heart and his mind. We don't get anything. We get it in this one verse. Just put yourself in the world of this story. What in the world must have been going on in his heart and mind? Probably a ton. This verse from Hebrews gives us two things that we're going to take as we're supposed to take back into the story with a fresh reading. These two things that are going on in Noah's heart and mind are faith and fear. Faith and fear. That's how the writer of Hebrews describes Noah's inner state. So those are two brief points. First, faith in God, and secondly, fear of God. They're totally inseparable, but both are described here in turn, so we'll look at each idea. So first, faith in God. Noah's faith in God in this impossible, disastrous event. In 1996, my family lived through a flood uh, in Levittown. If any of you know Levittown, it actually floods a lot. There's this, uh, it's just a drainage creek that ran behind our house, and it was like this place of like tons of adventure and like thorn scrapes and like manhunt games all through my youth. And then one day, like we were in the house and we just saw the waters, like the storm drains in the streets were rising up on one end, and we could see through like our top floor, like the creek was rising too, and it started to meet in the middle. We're like, uh-oh. And then one foot in the house. Dad turns off the power. <laughs> this could be a while. Two feet. What can we salvage? Couch on top of the kitchen table. Three feet. Couch is done for. Anything else? Too late. I mean, it happened fast, and we're kind of, we're in a flood, like a lot of floodplains, when all the places around you that are on higher ground can't handle the drainage water anymore, it just dumps, and it comes fast. When they, when they tell you, watch out if you're in a car, in a floodplain, you're like, whatever, I'm in a car, it's going to be okay. You're not going to be okay, because it happens like lightning fast. You need to listen to those warnings. At least I will for the rest of my life, because I saw it and lived it. And you know, this is before like digital scanning and stuff. I was, I was helping my neighbors dig out days, weeks later, and like wedding photos, gone. Just memories from youth, gone. Filing cabinets of like irreplaceable documents, gone. Just like that, like life is one way, and the next day it's something else. Or in, like in the moment, I'll never forget watching the waters leave. At one point we looked outside and we're like, oh, you know what, now they're starting to abate. There's actually more water inside than outside. And I'll never forget like, we opened the door and all the water just poured out immediately. And so it was like as soon as it came, it was gone again because it, it just kept rushing elsewhere to meet its level. And I learned then, and I think in a lot of ways the world's still learning now, of all the things we can do to secure our lives, natural disasters are always humbling us. Like no amount of technology is really helping that much. There's even talk of relocating major portions of cities because of floodwaters. We don't have control over nature. We don't. So what was going on inside Noah? Inside of Noah. Hebrews tells us faith. Great, but get this. And this is obvious once you think about it. Nobody would say Noah had faith 
if he was like sitting on his recliner, like watching life go by really comfortable, and they said Noah's a man of faith. Maybe he was, but why is it talking about his faith? Because it was tested and had to be demonstrated in a crunch through a tremendous struggle. First of all, and this is really what the Hebrews 11:7 passage is getting at, there was life before the waters actually came. It says, by faith, he just started constructing. And I do think the writer of Hebrews is saying, go back, put yourself in his shoes. There's no water yet. He's received what seems to be a clear word from God. This was probably a years-long project of building an ark. Everyone must have thought he was absolutely crazy for years, and you better believe he had doubts along the way. Otherwise, we wouldn't have heard about his enduring faith because faith that doesn't endure isn't notable. Then the rains started coming. Then the rains start coming. At the very beginning of chapter 7, it's there uh, on the other page, on page 2. I didn't read the first 10 verses, but at the beginning of chapter 7, he's actually told by God, this is going to last 40 days and 40 nights. And it does. In verse 12, the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 19, it keeps coming to the point where the tops of the mountains are covered. He saw the waves going over the mountains. And still the writer of Hebrews is saying, by faith, Noah saw, essentially, that he was, like the rest of us, totally at the mercy of the elements in one sense. Outside now of the fantasy that we have any real control over our lives. That's his state and yet at the same time protected. Completely out of control. There's no rudder on this thing. There was no instruction that he should have, he should be navigating. No, it's just like, I'm told to build it and then let it float. And you boatsmen and boatswomen out there, no. A boat without a rudder, it's not fun. He's completely at the mercy of the elements and at the same time, completely protected by God. No control, and yet knowing God was providing safety in chaos. Coming back to what I said to you kids, just as we get, got started, about root and fruit. Root and fruit. Did you know that faith, as described in the life of Noah, has a really important root aspect you need to understand, and also a fruit aspect you have to understand? At the very beginning of Hebrews 11, Faith is defined, and and listen to this if you don't have a definition of faith. What is faith? Faith, Hebrew says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You can think of this as like the root aspects of faith. I trust in God. I have an assurance in God. I have confidence in God. I believe in God. This is an old man who knew the world really well, and he knew all of the murder in the world and all of the violence, and he knew there wasn't a shred of hope for his children in this world. He saw the world, and then he heard a clear word from God, and he knew God. And at the heart level, the confidence, the assurance, the belief in God, that's what he clung to instead of what he could see. Who else was he going to believe? Who else was he going to follow in a murderous, violent world? But that's just the root level of faith. There's also a fruit level of faith. Did you know 
that there is absolutely no difference in the Greek language, which our New Testament was written in, between the words faith and faithfulness. It's actually the heart of a ton of fights through church traditions over the last 2,000 years. There is no difference. Faith and faithfulness is the same word, pistis. And here in Hebrews 11, it really does seem to talk about the heart level, the confident believing, the trusting. But doesn't this verse 7 that tells us about Noah's faith talk about the fruit too? He didn't just have great thoughts about God or a heart trust in God. He actually followed God, and that was faith. He's talking about fruit now. Root and fruit. I tell my kids, you got to think of it like clinging. you got to think of it like clinging. You, you know, um, anybody watch Batman? Any kids watch Batman? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for parents if I'm jumping too far ahead in your children's development to talk about Batman. But Batman's got this, Batman's got this great toy. It's not really a weapon. It's not a weapon. But it's, like, it's almost like a crossbow, but not. It's like this little pistol with a rope. And it's like he shoots it. And a, a wire goes out of his little pistol and then anchors into like a wall or a tree. You know what I'm talking about? Does anybody know the name of that thing? Grappling hook. Okay, he's got a grappling hook. I could have just asked. He's got a grappling hook. What does a grappling hook do? It aims at something. This is like the faith. This is the root aspect of faith. It's, it's aiming at God and his promises. It's confident in him. It's assured by him. It's believing toward him. But it also goes out and it locks and it moves you towards him. That faithfulness that, that moves towards God. If we think of faith as something that remains in the heart and the mind, it is not biblical faith. Because faith and faithfulness cannot be separated. I think of it with my kids more as like a clinging. Like a taking hold of. Not just an aiming with the heart, but a grabbing of the heart and not letting go. Here's the point. Here's the point. Noah's faith, that first point. In this life, we absolutely must trust someone, even if it's just yourself. In this life, we absolutely must trust someone, stand somewhere, cling to something. It is not a matter of whether, it is a matter of what. Everyone is clinging to something right now. My life is going to be fine my, my relationship with my spouse is going to be fine. My relationship with my kids, my job, my home not flooding, my city not becoming more than I can handle. Everybody's clinging to something until they're not. Is that something you want to go down with is the question that Hebrews puts before us when we think of the story of Noah. Noah clings to the only one who is good and whose word may be trusted whether in peace or disaster but of course we find out about our faith in the disaster let's know his faith secondly fear of god uh, in hebrews eleven seven, it says there right at the bottom of page three in the text in reverent fear he constructed the ark again this idea can't be that separate from faith but since it's mentioned we're going to talk about it if you're familiar with that phrase, the fear of God, it comes out a lot in our scriptures. And did you know, it is not this idea that we should be terrified of God every moment. It's not like we think of God as like, how horrifying, let me run as far as I can away. That's not it. The fear of God, biblically speaking, means God is big in our eyes. 
bigger in our eyes than anything else, bigger in our eyes than anything we can see. That's fear of the Lord, big in our eyes. God is big in our eyes. So think about the Noah story. I think one of the moments where if I was Noah, my faith would have been tested to the utmost is when he got to day 41 and he was still in the boat. In the very last verse that I read from the Genesis passage in verse 24, it says the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. That means all he could see was water for 150 days. How long did God tell him the rains were going to come? 40. Thank you. Who was that? Isaac. Great job. Hand next time, but great job. I love it. I don't love you because you raise your hand. I love you because I love you. He was not told that he wouldn't be able to see anything but water for 150 days. He had to hang out like 90 more days saying, maybe this is the rest of my life. Maybe the rest of my life is on the boat. He told me he'd save me. He told me waters would come for 40 days and there's still water everywhere. He waits more than three times the length of those 40 days and is still on the ark. He has passed any kind of promised word about when relief will come. And, you know, things are cramped in there. There's like animals and stuff. And it smells not great. What's the point? This is a little bit of a hard word, but we need it. And I think it's an Advent word for us all. Even under the protection and favor of God, things can be terrible. Let me say that again. Even under the protection and favor of God, some things in our lives can be terrible for seasons. It is not easy to keep God big in our eyes. Living by faith is actually often terribly difficult. There's a simplicity to it, right? Just enter the ark. Just stay in there. But simple is not easy. I'll never forget, early in pastoral ministry, I had this pastor who I really still respect. I just don't know what he was thinking when he said this. I was dealing with this really difficult situation my first year of pastoral ministry. And he's like, hey, listen, all you have to do is be faithful. That was the word he used. All you have to do is be faithful, and God will worry about the rest. Like I was some kind of robot who, 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 didn't, who didn't actually have to struggle to be faithful. Like faithful was easy. Faithful is anything but easy. Simple is not easy. And you're not supposed to put your heart away. This is what I actually want you kids to know. God is real and he's present and you can trust him. But we have the kind of faith that can endure through rough times. And God doesn't promise that you won't have rough times. He means to say he will bring you through it. And he will show you during and at the end of your life that being faithful was worth it because he was never letting go of you all through the difficulty. That's our faith. Not that it's easy. My goodness, it's not. Just ask Israel. Just ask Jesus. This is the first place in the Bible also, if you didn't know, where the, the time of 40 days is described. If you know your Bible, this, this period of time is worked all through our scriptures. 40 days and 40 nights of rain on earth. What else? Moses went to Midian for 40 years after he murdered the Egyptian. 
Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To learn how to trust God alone. Goliath taunted Israel's army 40 days before David came. Elijah spent 40 days fleeing to Mount Horeb. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness before his ministry began. And so sometimes the church voluntarily takes 40 days during seasons like Lent to remember these times of stretching where God needed us in a wilderness to show us that life is about trusting only in him, whatever floods come. It's actually why we have the season of Lent. Right now we're in Advent, which is not 40 days in our tradition, but still it is a season of waiting for the one that we're clinging to to bring rest from the chaos that we experience now. Friend, Mike Kanjan put it this way, Advent is the spirit-given grace of enduring the chaos until Jesus returns to make everything right. Kids, you've been great. I have three last things for you to take home and talk to your grown-ups about. This is for all of you, of course. I want to give you three applications to close because I know not everybody here from week to week believes the same thing. And I know, I know, not everybody's faith is in the same place, even among those of us who are professing Christians. So I have three applications for you, depending on whether your, your faith today is strong, if it's fading, or if it's all but gone. First, if your faith is strong today, I do think the encouragement of these passages is to keep our eyes on the one that we cannot see. To keep God big in our eyes, whatever else we can see. Bishop Granham was the founder of New Covenant Church. That's partnered with us for a few citywide services over the last few years. And the first time we did a combined service with them in 2020, he said something that stayed with me. He said, uh, friends, I don't want you to waste God's time asking him for the possible. You know, he's speaking in hyperbole. You can, get, you can ask God for anything. But he was saying, I don't want you to just ask God for the possible. I want you to ask God for the impossible. I wonder ways that God could be bigger in your eyes. That's an invitation. That's like when you're strong, put it to work. It's for faithfulness. It's for fruitfulness. So I guess that's me saying be like Noah. If you were here last week, I said this passage isn't about being like Noah. It's also true. You know, when we read about one faithful dude through whom humanity is preserved, that's Jesus. Don't make yourself like Noah. All this generation's hanging on your faithfulness. No. Jesus is the Savior. But of course, the scriptures are also saying in other ways, do be like him. Do emulate this faith in faithfulness. That's if your faith is strong. Here's a word for you if your faith is fading, and I know that's a lot of you right now. If your faith is struggling, it is helpful to make a list of things that are bigger in your eyes than he is. What are the things that are bigger in your eyes than God himself? And sometimes for me, and I do have weak faith, kids, pastors too, when I just get it out onto paper, I look at it and say, really? 
I think this is bigger than the living God of Noah. Get it out on paper. This tends to awaken us, awaken in us, a kind of dialogue with him. And he actually gets a big bit bigger. Thirdly and finally, if your faith is all but gone, or if you suspect it could never be there, if you're on day 149 on the ark and there is hardly a scrap of faith left, there's this wonderful word in verse 16. Look back with me. Verse 16. Those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. I don't know if that just rolled past your eyes the first time we read it or your ears. God shut them in. Do you know what that means? That means God closing his people into the ark was stronger than their rocky faith on day 149. God himself is at work in this journey of faith and faithfulness. This means that Noah wasn't alone in his incredulous clinging to the impossible. On days when his faith hit rock bottom, he was still shut in the ark. God's work, your mind, I don't let go of mine that easily. You're not in this boat all alone. You can't sink because you're a bad faith on your worst day. That's what that means. He has shut us in. I cannot escape his grace as easily as I might think I can. Friends, I've said enough. By his great love, he has shut us into salvation. He has shut us into salvation by our baptism, by our faith in Christ. May his grace meet you exactly at the place where your faith is weakest and carry you to your rest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.